Ah, good morning. It's great to be here and so many people here this morning. And if you've been for the last few weeks, you will know we are just continuing. We just started our journey into the Gospel of Mark this year, which is a great opportunity to, to get back into the Gospels and to discover Jesus. And that's what we're aiming to do this morning as we continue on the journey. And you will know, let's say, in the last couple of weeks, the first week we looked at John the Baptist, John the Baptist's announcement that the one was coming, and then Jesus' baptism. And then last week, Louise took us into Jesus' announcement of the kingdom and the recognition of the kingdom's coming and the calling of the disciples. And then this morning, the kingdom is really starting to come near. We go straight into the deep end, splash. There's no holding back in this gospel. We don't get a long warm-up. We go straight into challenging stuff. We go straight into demons. We go straight into the battle with evil. We go straight into healing and the expelling of of illness and diseases and the such like. And, And to be fair to Mark, he doesn't set us up for this. The demons start this going. And as we look into this text, we'll see that. That's the challenge we have. Sorry, I'm having trouble with this this morning. Um, and, it, and it gives us a bit of a challenge. And, and say this morning, you know, I won't be rearranging any chairs, but I don't think it'll be any less comfortable for us in the sense that we're going to have to tackle things which don't fit easily in our worldview problem. They don't fit easily in the way we see the world and the way we think about it as Jesus starts to deal with personal demons within people, within the body that he is preaching within. So you think about evil, and it challenges, challenges me to think, well, you know, I look at the Old Testament, I don't know if you have the same problem I do, you look at the Old Testament and think, oh, it's full of lots of not very nice stuff. There's lots of death and destruction. There's people killed in war. Even those few weeks ago when we talked about the Exodus, a glorious moment of liberation for the people of Israel involved the destruction of the entire army of Pharaoh in the sea. So it's a challenge. So if you look at the Old Testament, I thought it was interesting to see, you know, did they have a problem with evil that we don't have? Was there a difference then that's a challenge for us? So I had a look back and did a little bit of research. um, And actually, when you look in the Old Testament, someone reckons there's about 2.8 explicit references to the loss of life in terms of destruction, war, uh, murder, those sort of things. So 2.8 million people leave, lose their lives directly in that book. If you look at the, uh, the, some of the strongest atheists, they would argue it's perhaps 25 million. So there's a lot of people in there. So when we read it, you can see why it's quite hard sometimes. But I thought, well, what does that look like today? So I started doing some research. I, I did try and get a historian to help me, but I didn't get a response. So I have to rely on the internet for this. Um, but it suggests that even in the 21st century, over 10 million people have lost their lives in conflict and destructive wars. That's probably quite a conservative estimate. So if we go to the 25 million estimate for the Old Testament of 3,000 years, in the 50 years of my life, probably 30 million people have lost their lives in conflict. We look back at the 20th century, 150 million as an estimate, 77 million in World War II alone of which countless millions were the destructive hand of the Nazi regime and the genocide. 
I would argue this morning that we cannot look at these scriptures and suggest they had a problem that we evil that we do not have. The truth is we do. So the truth is this is still a question. Why do we need to believe this stuff? Well, because it's still a reality in our world. And if we start to look at our, our daily news feeds and whatever where we see it, we will know that evil is an ever very ever-present thing in our world. And that, of course, is what Jesus comes straight up against up when he announces the kingdom and he declares his kingship over it. So we're going to go into Mark. We're, in cha- we're still in chapter 1, uh, page 1002. We're going to start. I'm just going to read some of it. We've got going all the way from verse 21 right through to the end, to 45. But I'm just going to read the first section. So verse 21, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority? He even gives orders to the impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So I say we're straight into it. Mark can't help the fact that when Jesus comes into the temple, the demon recognizes that he is the Holy One of God and starts to object. Now, as we look at these texts, I really want to just um, pick up, and if I can make this work, press the right button, three words that I think are valuable to us to think about as we look and we go through this section. To look at presence, to look at faith, and to look at authority. And as I've puzzled over this text for the last couple of weeks, these are the words that are really drawn out, and there's a fourth that we'll come to. And so we're going to start to tackle this, we're going to start to look, and of course as we get into here, we start to see this demon arise. It's difficult, it's challenging for us. And C.S. Lewis, of course, says there's, there's an equal and opposite errors we can make. We can either ignore this stuff, and pretend it's not there, or we can get obsessed by it. And we'll see in this text, there's no obsession by it. Jesus doesn't go hunting for this stuff. It appears due to his presence and his authority. And so we will see that actually that's, that's what's going on. But to ignore it would be very difficult for us as we journey through Mark. As we will see, the first three sections we go through this morning all end on demons. And pages after pages, we will see demons mentioned. So... Although it's hard and it's a hard start, it's an important start because we're going to have to get our heads around this as we go into Mark's gospel over the coming weeks. And, and, and when we go into this area, you know, there are a lot of bad experiences. People have had bad experiences. They've heard bad things. I would just say that our bad experiences are not necessarily even a reason for disbelief. They're a reason for a greater confidence in knowing what this really says and what it really means. They're not a good reason to say, actually, I don't like this stuff and I'm going to put it away. And I will argue that as a body, that's really important uh, that we we see that. 
So looking at these, these words we've got, the, the first thing that happens is Jesus goes into, this, into the synagogue, he goes into the local temple in Capernaum, and the people recognize his authority. It's the first thing they say. What's this? A new teaching, a new teaching with authority. They hear him speak, and they know that he carries that authority. And it's actually, as I say, the presence of Jesus and his speaking, the presence of Jesus that causes this demon and the man to cry out. It causes him to object to Jesus' presence. It actually, and in Mark 3 we'll see that actually the text says the demons only seeing Jesus would fall at his feet and declare him the Son of God. So the very act of Jesus coming into this place has an influence on the evil because actually Jesus' announcement of the kingdom is coming to bring a new king. It's coming and it will expel the prince of this world. It will expel the things that are not of the kingdom. And that's what we'll see throughout this text this morning. And of course the demons, what does the demons say? The demons don't set into an argument with Jesus. The demons recognize Jesus' authority the text says, the demon says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? It's not, do you think you're going to destroy us? Or have you come to have a fight? It's, are you going to destroy us? It's a question. And then he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And, and, and in a way, we sing that song earlier, that we sing, even the demons believe. Someone said to me the other week, said, sometimes I wonder whether the demons believe more than we believe sometimes about this stuff. And that's a challenging one, isn't it? We see the demons recognize what's going on. They recognize the Son of God. Throughout the Gospel, Jesus tells the demons to stop telling people. And, and there's a whole motif going through the, the Gospel about Jesus trying to keep his, his uh, identity under wraps as he goes through. So, but, you know, so actually the demons are recognizing him. This is coming from them. It's not coming directly and immediately from Jesus and him hunting for it. And then another thing to bear in mind when we talk about these demons, there's no battle that goes on here. Although there is a conflict going on, Jesus is coming to regain territory that rightfully belongs to the, to the Lord. Actually, it is a matter of occupation. It's a matter of expellation of them. There's no battle. The demons recognize the authority. And Jesus says, be quiet and come out of him. And we'll see this, Jesus pushing out what shouldn't be of the kingdom. When we get later on, we'll be into the storm in 4.39, uh, in Mark 4. We'll see the exact same words are used by Jesus to rebuke the storm. The exact same words in Greek are used to steal the storm. Now, that's not to suggest that weather is evil or weather is evil, but there is a very good argument that suggests that... Um, that storm is whipped up to stop Jesus getting because he actually is going across the lake to do a very significant piece of ministry um, which has great implications and great understanding for his overarching authority across the mass powers of evil which he is facing up to. So we see the impure spirit leaves the man violently with a shriek and then the people were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching, and with authority. We're back to the authority now. They've heard the authority. They've seen the authority. And we know the authority is a crucial part, and we will come back again to that. 
So they're amazed and they hear the teaching. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news of him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Now David Pawson, um, a writer and a speaker, he talks about, he says throughout Mark, you will find that there are two reactions to what they see Jesus do and say. There's either a reaction of faith, as we start to see the people believe, the people are clambering after him because they've seen this authority. And there's another reaction, and that is fear. And later on we will see much more of that fear come out in this gospel. And of course that's our choice when we approach these things. They're not easy for us to get, but are we going to be fearful of them? Or are we going to respect them as the word of God? Are we going to respect them as an eyewitness account to the ministry of Jesus? And if so, then how do we approach that in terms of our faith? No matter how difficult that is, how do we get there and travel that journey? So we have a choice. And I think it's a really important choice. Why should we believe this stuff? Because it matters, and I hope by the end of today we'll see a little bit more as to why that is. So we've had this. We started straight in the deep end. Jesus walked into the synagogue. We've got the healing of the demonic man. So we're carrying on now, verse 29 on 10,003. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. So again, second paragraph, demons. We will see this, it will repeat it over and over again for us. We are going to have to decide what we think this means. We are going to have to make a faith decision on whether we think this matters and whether it's genuine. So just quickly talk about the healing of Simon, mother-in-law. Um, you know, this is, this is the same thing in terms of Jesus expelling what's not part of the kingdom. So the sickness and the disease is not part of the kingdom. So his action is the same. Some commentators would argue actually this particular healing is quite referenced to the demonic in terms of that side. But just to be absolutely clear what the Bible doesn't say and what I do not say is that all sickness is to do with a personal manifestation of demonic. That is not the case. There is not biblical evidence for that. To be absolutely clear, sickness and illness pervades society, pervades mankind, and it's not just a personal activity of, of, of the demonic or that. But it is, of course, what we are saying is it is the wrongness in the world. It's part of the fallen world that we have. So Jesus' action against it is the same in terms of this is not part of the kingdom of God. This sickness, this illness is not part of this kingdom, and therefore it will leave if Jesus is truly king so so we see simon's uh, mother-in-law healed we see her uh, immediately raised up and then that evening we see the people come now of course this is the sabbath day the people will have been staying indoors because on the sabbath you didn't travel around that wasn't allowed 
So as soon as sunset comes, the people are free to move and the people come in their masses to Jesus and we see healing of many. We see many demons delivered uh, and we see him calling them again not to speak because they know who he is and they know his authority. So the faith of the people is rising up and that is the story in Mark's gospel. We see this mass uprising of faith. We see a body of faith start to carry Jesus forward Rather awkwardly, as we'll find by the end of this, Jesus has to separate himself from the masses because this isn't quite the way it's, he wants it to go. Maybe one could argue, but actually it's not quite um, the easiest way forward. So, so we see this faith of the message, and throughout Mark we'll see it. And faith is important here. But before I go on again, I'm going to say what I'm not saying. In terms of these healings and deliverances, the personal faith of the person being prayed for, the person praying, is not the critical factor. I'm not saying that. But faith is an issue in terms of the body. It is difficult to get away in Mark's Gospel and in the other Gospels from recognising that the upbuilding of faith has a significant impact on the outbreaking of the kingdom, of the seeing of these healings. And, of course, Jesus highlights that. He talks, because as his story goes on, this faith builds, but then we come up against the Pharisees, and the opposition comes, and the faith starts to shrink. And Jesus says it. He says, be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. Later on, he says this up. It's the yeast of the Pharisees, and yeast infects. Yeast gets into something and spreads through it. And Jesus says, be careful of the yeast. And, of course, the yeast gets into that faith, and the faith starts to shrink. And there is no doubt that the the miracles we see in Mark's gospel start to fall away. Jesus says himself, that he talks about the baskets, when the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, there's a diminishing return, there's a diminishing miraculous activity, and Jesus says to the disciples, do you not understand how many baskets were here, how many baskets were there? So Jesus is, is explaining this is going on. So this mass of faith is, is of vital importance. And, and Jesus goes on in, in 6.5, he talks about, he goes to his hometown. And the lack of faith of the people in his hometown meant he could do very little there. We don't understand. And that's probably the most important thing when we deal with healing, is we have to accept that we do not understand. But some of the things that we do understand, we need to, to grasp and go with. And so this, this body is crucial. And that's why, again, why should we still believe this stuff? Can't we just say, well, I'm not sure about this stuff. But if somebody else wants to believe it, that's fine. I think as I've been through this stuff, I just think that's not really the option. Because the body of faith, we as a body and our belief, is of critical importance to the outbreaking of the kingdom and the rep- Pulsion of evil to the, the expulsion of sickness and such like. So it's important. And maybe, you know, you've had experiences of seeing healings. You may have seen them at big events. Is that just because they're big events? Is it just because there's a lot of hype? Is it because there's a lot of praying? Or is it factored in to the fact that the mass of a body of faith has an impact on the presence of God, has an impact on the holiness that surrounds this place? The Gospels would suggest that that is true. Jesus' words and Jesus' passage through this gospel would suggest that is a, a factor. And then just talking about faith, um, it, it can be your experience if you pray for people for healing 
Um, if you pray for deliverance, even those sort of things, we can find that our faith, we go in very faithful, but then we don't tend to see something and our faith starts to, to retract. It starts to wear away. And it struck me as, it, as going in this that that isn't really faith, is it? If our faith is based on observational activity, it's observational education. It's like doing a chemistry experiment. I add this to water and it blows up. That's, I see that and I believe that. And of course, when we go to Hebrews, Hebrews 11, um, text, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and insurance about what we do not see. So faith is massively challenging in these things. It actually says, do we believe this stuff? Do we believe that Jesus is the king? Do we believe that Jesus has the authority? Do we have the faith to believe that? Almost in a sense, regardless of what we see. Obviously, what we see has a massive impact on how we can hold our faith together. And as Alice said earlier, actually exercising our faith, being willing to risk it, is crucial to seeing it being brought up. Um, and actually, I was reading the other day, uh, Bill, uh, Bill Johnson, it wasn't Bill Hyde, it was Bill Johnson, talks about, he says, I refuse to lower my faith to my level of experience. And I thought that's quite profound. You read this stuff and say, well, I don't see that, so that's probably I don't believe in it. Or actually, I read this stuff and I believe in it. And if my experience doesn't match that, the way he approaches it is, I will keep working until my experience does match my faith. But if you're anything like me, my faith tends to drop to my experience. And I think that's a real challenge to us to say, actually, no, this is my faith. I believe this stuff. And I will walk this journey until I see it. And, and, and that's what he says. So we've got the faith of the people uh, crucially there um, again. So moving on, we're now on verse 35 on page 1003. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Block of text three ends with demons. Get used to it. This is what Mark's gospel is like. But here we find the presence of God in a different factor. Jesus, when this is all going on, Jesus has sneaked off out into the, in the Greek, the Eremos. He's gone out into the wilderness. He's gone out into the lonely place, the solitary place, to find the presence of his Father. Jesus has authority. Jesus knows where his authority comes from. Mark 28, it says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So Jesus knows that he needs to go and find time to be in the presence of God. So he goes outside. By this time, I imagine that what's happening at Simon's house is, is a bit like the NHS under pressure. You know, there's a waiting list and people are going, well, what you've got? Oh, hang on. Yeah, well, he'll see you tomorrow. You know, and they're trying to manage this. And then Jesus isn't there. He's gone and sneaked off into the Eremos. He's gone and disappeared outside of town into the lonely and solitary place. 
But it's not lonely and solitary at all, of course, because he's gone to be in the presence of his father. It's a really challenging passage in this. This is the height, some of the heights of Jesus' ministry, and Jesus is off with his father. And it strikes me that if Jesus knows he needs to go off and be in that presence, then who do we think we are if we don't? So what is our Eremos? Where is the place that we go to be in the presence of only one person, to be in the presence of God? It's actually crucial to Jesus. It's where the authority comes from, and he knows he needs to return to that source of authority. And we continue through Mark. We will see Jesus pass that authority on to his disciples. We will see him pass it on to his followers to go and preach the word, to go and cast out demons, to heal the sick. That authority comes to us. We need to learn from Jesus that we need to be in the presence of God to operate in that authority. And of course, Jesus' authority is recognized as we go through this gospel. We will find the build-up. The, the religious leaders know that Jesus has authority. They question him. They don't say, have you got authority to do this? They say, where did you get the authority to do this? Um, they challenge it. So just going to finish off, so we're going to go to the end, and then I want to take us into another word. Um, where are the time? Okay, so 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once. With a strong warning, see that you do not tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. The Eremos again. He stayed outside in the lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now, I'm not going to go greatly into this, this healing. I talked in the summer about healing. There's quite significance here. Um, the leprous man, you don't touch leprous men in the first century because it makes you unclean and you have to go and go down a special bath, down some steps, and then come out of the bath via different steps. It's complicated. It's messy. It means you have restrictions on what you can do and who you can be with. So the very act that Jesus touching this man is, is completely countercultural. But actually, it's not about Jesus becoming unclean. It's about the cleanliness of Jesus passing into the man. Again, it's this presence of Jesus parting from him into the people and removing what is not of the kingdom of God. And the man is healed. And again, he he tries to avoid this being spread around. So we've had these three three, three words, the faith of the people, the presence of of God, the presence of Jesus, and the authority to which he operates, authority to which we, he operates. But while I've been working on this over this last few weeks, a fourth word came, and that word was surrender. I was really challenged by the word surrender because I'd looked at these passages, and I always think of this passage, this is the start of the war. Jesus comes in and the battle comes, and Jesus meets up to these demons who are there to oppose his kingship. They are the present ruling authorities in the people. And Jesus comes 
to battle them and to send them on their way. So I was really just thrown by this word for, for days. But then last Sunday, I was hugely blessed by Louise. And if you were here, I think you were probably all hugely blessed. And I just, I will say that just a massive thank you for Louise and the gift that God's given her that she shares with us. Somebody said to me in the last week, she could be on the platform at New Wine and she'd hold her own. I thought, yes, you're absolutely right. But isn't it wonderful that God's given her to us? So thank you for your faithfulness and Bible teaching because it is an honor to be part of that and to hear that. But she said something last week that really struck me. It might have been quite obvious, but just like a penny dropping. If violence overcomes violence, then violence wins. If love overcomes violence, love wins. And all of a sudden, this surrender word went, oh, I see. I see what you're saying. And it drew me, it took me on to Ephesians 6. I've read this hundreds of times and no doubt hundreds of times I might even say I've read it a thousand times I don't know but the armour of God so if you want to follow it on 1177 but this passage on the armour of God this is Paul's advice to us the followers of Jesus on how to deal with the battle of spiritual evil how to deal with the stuff that Jesus is dealing with in the synagogue at Capernaum how do we deal with that what's Paul's advice verse 10 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what's going on in the temple of Capernaum. That's what's going on in the people of the first century Jerusalem. Just maybe that's what's going on in our world today. And he says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. He doesn't tell us to fight. He tells us to stand. I've read that a hundred times and I just suddenly, actually, what are we doing? We're not surrendering to the enemy. We're surrendering to the one who will fight this battle with love, with authority, with his presence. So surrendering to that presence. And of course, it took me back to Moses when we talked about crossing the Red Sea. What did Moses say? He said, you, don't have, to, you have to be still. The Lord will fight for you. And that, of course, is the truth of it. So this surrender word is... It's just so important when we come to this, whether we surrender in terms of our faith, whether we're surrendering to authority. The importance of taking this stuff seriously is because if we don't, we don't really know where we're giving our authority to. We have to choose where our authority in our lives and the things we do goes. We need that faith to go into it and we need to be seeking the presence of God that will drive it out in the open I just want to finish with a story I, I hadn't originally intended to share this story but a very good friend who I meet with regularly said you have to uh, he was right and just as an aside actually if, you, if you're trying to do this journey following Jesus don't go alone get yourself in a home group get yourself in amongst people brothers and sisters who will 
meet with you, who talk with you, who will pray with you, who will give you good and godly advice. So I say this is one thing, just don't go alone, you'll never make it. So this story I want to tell um, goes back to 2006. Uh, my background, you probably know, I came to faith in 2005 at New Wine um, in a very muddy field, in a very wet tent. Uh, I came and met Jesus. But within a year of that moment, us as a family, Alice and I, were, were felt that God was tugging out the wedges in our life. He was pulling out and un- unsettling us. And it was challenging. We didn't really know, but we were up for it. We were up to go and do whatever, and it was time to, to let go of a job for 20-plus years. It was time to move out of a community that we had well-established in. We were so well-established that our house was still called the Roses House for some time after we left it. So this was somewhere we, we'd, we'd settled, and, and we felt God was pulling us. So we thought, well, we'll go to a conference. There was a conference called Healing and Destiny. We thought, that'll help. That'll, we'll sort out, we'll find out what our destiny is. So we went to this conference, really great conference, down in Bath at the Forum, um, it's an old cinema, uh, led up by Jim Graham as the main speaker. And if you've heard Jim Graham speak, you will have been blessed, and we mightily were. Uh, George Verwer was on the programme. There was a lot of good speakers, there was a lot of stuff, and we were gone with this, our heart, where are we going, Lord? But on the first night, we, we, we went to the initial talks, and then we heard the, you know, that we were there as part of the worship. But as we walked back from the forum to our hotel, we stopped by, we walked past us with the Pulteney and looked down, if you know Bath, looking down over the, the weir, the waterfalls. And it would, you maybe describe it even now as, as the Eremos, as the lonely place. But we stood by that water and we prayed a prayer that turned out to be perhaps the most potent prayer that we had ever prayed. We prayed, and I see it as a, as a matter of surrender. Lord, we don't know why we're here. But if you've got something you want to do, then we give you authority to do it. We invite you to do what you want to do with us on these four days, because we've come to this place purely to be here for you. That led to perhaps the most painful days Uh, that we have experienced. It led to a a place that was crushing for a few days. There was points where we were clinging to faith. We were asking the Lord to speak in Scripture to keep us going, and he always did. He was indeed faithful. It was a tough few days. And, And Bill Johnson, again, he talks about a surrender moment. And he says it was glorious, but not pleasant. That's an understatement. It was a crushing and tough few days. But I'm going to the detail about that. I'm not going to go into that, because what I want to talk about right now is the final morning. The final morning, the Friday morning, we went, we continued to go to this conference over these days. And the Friday morning, we were in worship. I remember the song, it was the splendor of the king. He wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide. And during that song, during that worship, around that worship, I found myself on the floor in between the rows of cinema seats. And there were people climbing over the rows of seats to get to me. (laughs) 
I didn't know what happened. I said to Alice afterwards, what happened? How did I end up there? And she said, you screamed. And you screamed, and you screamed, and you screamed. Just to be clear, there was nothing. This conference wasn't about deliverance. This conference wasn't about evil. It was about all sorts of things. Jim Graham talked about the church today. He preached beautifully. This wasn't what it was. Nobody was hunting this stuff. Nobody was looking for this stuff. There was no teaching on it. But God knew in our moment of surrender. God knew in our faith. And God knew in the presence of those people and the presence of those people in faith who were equipped to deal with this stuff. They were equipped to come and they would pray for me and they were able to deliver me. And just to be clear, it's not a simple fix. It's not a matter of do that and it's all sorted. That's not the way it works. Certainly not in the the now and the not yet of the kingdom. But it is one of the reasons why I believe this stuff. I believe it because I know it to be true. I know it to be real. But it drives more in my heart. It drives more in my heart the importance of us believing it. Because if we don't believe it, then those people don't get free. Those people... You, me, we don't get to see that breakthrough. We don't get to see that deliverance because we do not treat it as real. We do not recognize it as a genuine part of kingdom ministry. So it's a challenge. We're going to be challenged as we go through this. Just again, as I said, submission is the key to personal triumph. We're going to have to have our deal with these texts. We're going to have to get our heads around demons. We're going to have to get our heads around their presence in our lives, in our society, in our world. And we're going to have to decide whether we have the faith to say, yes, this is true. We don't need to go hunting for it. There's not a biblical basis for that. But are we going to be real about it? Are we going to seek the presence of God? Are we going to surrender ourselves and let our faith, as Jesus talks about, a childlike faith, are we going to let us take us to a place where we can see these things dealt with and we can see the liberation story begin? So we're just going to worship and invite the band to come up and join these And we're just going to sing some songs and invite you to stand when the band starts up. We're just going to worship and go into time, uh, communion and prayer, but say thank you.